You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. All right. In this episode, Weston pays tribute to our latest departed great, the Finnish phenom Kaya Sariaho. Plus, in the two-minute drill, dude, where's our music director? Hey, make sure you subscribe <laughs> to our podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. <laughs> Click follow, Apple Podcasts, hit the plus. I know it's going to be good. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot tape. We just got a fresh batch of lapel pins, guys. Ooh. Hot off the presses. Hot Matt off Cummings, the presses. Matt Cummings, there he is. Great to have Matt back in the Studio B I know, George, here. you and I have been uh, ships that pass on the been night been this know, spring. Been, man. You know, hard, hardest working people in showbiz. You, you uh, <laughs> decamped to my hometown last time I could be on the show. and I, That's right. There I was in Pittsburgh. Uh, Weston Williams. I was a, a ship passing in a chapel, uh, and then Aww. wherever one goes to to turn 30. So I am older. <sighs> I am wiser. Uh, uh, fun fact, my lovely wife, um, for my very first birthday after we got married, put up a little banner that said, Happy Birthday, Weston. It said, right. Older, Wiser, Hotter. Um, hey. within 20 minutes, the hotter had fallen down <laughs> and she tried to stick it up with new tape and it fell down again. So <laughs> that's where I'm at mentally. Divine intervention. Fine. Excited to be back. Uh, I may be, not be hotter, but I am older. So yes. that's, that's good. That's fun. That's bizarre. The, well, congratulations again to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Super fantastic. The Detroit Grand Prix, which is part of the IndyCar circuit was this past weekend in the Motor City. And I was disappointed that Detroit Opera was not part of any of the proceedings. I thought that maybe like one of their singers was going to be doing the anthem or a God Bless America. I think what they should have done was uh, sent out just a normal car and put the principal trombonist in the back seat just revving as hard as he could to make it sound like it was uh, just like, a you know, a tw- however many horsepowers is a lot. I realized I didn't know. I was going to say 12. I'm like, that doesn't seem very high. How many is a lot of horsepower? Do we know this question? The answer to this question? We, I mean, we, we, we might not, but someone probably <laughs> out there does know that. Please let well, us know at operaboxscore at gmail.com how many, how many is a lot of horses are a lot of power. <laughs> well, so it, it was either that or um, Yuval Sharon, the artistic director at Detroit Opera. He was going to direct kind of like the opening ceremonies. And then for the race, all the cars and were going to drive horses. backwards. Yeah, yeah, backwards. There it is. Grateful to have Weston back in the editing suite, by the way. Oh, he's we're suffered through the last two shows. You know that <laughs> Mr. George, he does a lot of things, but um An apology to all of our listeners whose ears may never recover from the audio quality of the past uh week or so. So yeah. Let's get down to it. Let's talk some opera. And now, ladies and gentlemen. This is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, 
Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. We have a very special Hall of Fame this week. Uh, unfortunately, I found out uh, from Oliver Camacho, of all people, um, uh, he sent me an email. Uh, he's he's currently in mourning now, I suppose, which is why he isn't here. Uh, he's we currently found in Boston, out, which is basically the same it's thing. It's basically the same thing, yes. Uh, uh, Kaya Saryaho, um has died um, on uh, last Friday. We're recording on Monday, so it's only been really uh, three days, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, this one really hit me uh, quite hard. Uh, because she was such an incredibly important composer to me. Uh, I remember around late high school, maybe early college, my my taste in opera was rapidly maturing into the strange amalgamation of weird sounds that it currently is. Um, but while as that was happening, I was looking at my playlist and figuring out that there was something very wrong uh, with the gender makeup, especially a lot of men, uh, a lot of male composers all over the place. Um, a lot of Central European composers. And so I, I specifically remember going out to try to find uh, a woman composer that I would really, really resonate with. Uh, okay, I don't so think... Sariaha was the first female composer. She, she was not. To? She was not the first I ever listened to. I I, I, I found some others first. I, I probably found like Ethel Smith or um, uh, Barbara Strozzi first. Um, but I, I didn't really click with uh, Ethel Smith's music. I think she has kind of a, you know, as radical as she was politically. I don't think she has a particularly radical sound to the her rec- music. The Wreckers, right? Was- yeah, yeah. I, I do like The Wreckers a lot. And I, I, I would love to talk about it on the show one day because I've, I've matured in some ways in terms of being able to appreciate that sort of thing. Um, but you know, it, it's very British, uh, which is not always what you want. Sorry, George. Um, uh, and you know, always Barbara Strozzi, George, but <laughs> and Barbara Strozzi, you know, uh, I had I had not had the great uh, awakening yet encountering historically informed performance. Um, so uh, so I was I was searching around. I couldn't. I found a few composers here and there, but then I found a very special recording of an opera called L'Amour de Loin, which translates to Love from Afar. Um, I heard like a little tiny clip on the internet somewhere, and I was fascinated because I never heard anything like it before. Um, and I bought it on a, I bought it on CD, uh, as one does, and when it arrived, I put it on, and I remember literally just, uh, you know, it took me one or two tracks to sort of get into the sound world of it. But by the beginning of track three, which I'm going to play now, I was completely, completely hooked. This is the beginning of track three from the opera uh, L'Amour de Loin. It's the Kent Nagana recording. Um, this is the uh, uh, Maria, uh, Marie Ann Todorovich singing the role of the pilgrim. Uh, but just listen to what happens with the strings followed by the, 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 the piccolo and the woodwinds bubbling up behind it. Just take a listen.
I had never heard music like that before. I, I had not dipped my toes really that deep into anything beyond like the beginnings of serialism as far yeah, as, yeah. you know, stylistic <laughs> modernism was concerned. Um, and this is like a completely different thing. It's uh, so incredibly like atmospheric the way mm-hmm. the way you can like almost feel her music. Exactly. This is it's so visceral and yet so so modern. Um, I mean, obviously it has very deep roots in the 20th century, but uh, but all of her operas, I, I think all her operas, I could be wrong in saying this, I think they all came out in the 21st. I believe uh, L'Amour de Noël was the first uh, in the year 2000. Um, and this was, this was something completely new to me because my experience with contemporary opera was largely American and minimalist or minimalist influenced, you know, your John Adams, uh, your Philip Glass, whom I love, whatever Carlisle Floyd was up to at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but sh- this was a completely different sound world. She was the first Finnish composer I'd ever heard. Uh, and she sent me down this rabbit hole of contemporary Finnish opera, which I would love to like just take a deep dive into one day. Because we don't have Finland, time for that, <laughs> It 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 um, it hits so far above its weight class. I mean, you know, uh, it's wild. But I do want to p- point this out. I think that there are a lot of great contemporary Finnish opera composers out there. Um, but uh, Sariaho um, was uh, had a kind of a brilliant collaboration with her librettist of choice, Amin Malouf, who is Lebanese French, and he writes almost exclusively in French. While most singers, when sorry, I first got on the 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 scene, could not really sing a lot of Finnish. Even you know, if you go back to even Sibelius, a lot of his songs are in Swedish. You know, if you go back early enough, you don't have a lot who are like really, really getting in deep into the text um, because there's just less people who speak Finnish. Um, But uh, because she had access to this really, really good librettist who wrote in French, she was able to like bring her sensibilities as a Finnish composer to the center of Europe. Uh, And that's a kind of a kind of the key for her, her fame, but I don't want to say like, that is not why she's famous. She right. is fa- uh, she is famous because she's just that good. Yeah. <laughs> she's always been a really deeply musical person. She was born in 1952, um, and as a child, um, she t- often told a story about how she was always imagining music in her head to the point where she once uh, uh, told her mother to come in and turn off her pillow because the pillow was playing music in her mind too loudly. Um, and she was, um, 
I haven't come across any articles that explicitly said, say that she had synesthesia, mm -hmm. but um, the way she talks about how she experiences music uh, really, I think, speaks to that. She, she, like music uh, as color. Yes, she experiences sounds and color yeah. interchangeably. She she also talked about smells for certain colors as well. Um, she started to compose uh, as a kid at the age of ten, but she did it in secret um, because her family wasn't very musical. Um, and in her mind, she had this idea of a composer as being a, a man, an old man. She had this image of this stern uh, portrait of Sibelius, you know, kind of looking down at her, right? Which, you know, we all do mm -hmm. sometimes because we, I, I, I am a Sibelius stan. We um, all have our own Sibelius, Weston. It's yeah. so true. <laughs> Just a little internal Sibelius trying to get us to sing Finlandia. Uh, we've Lord all been knows there. that everyone's familiar with like very austere portraits of very <laughs> serious composer <laughs> men. Was this, um, was this something that continued to be an issue for her as she kept studying well she uh she she started to like really uh you know as she went through school and grew, grew a little bit older she eventually went to school i believe for graphic design as well as music um so she did kind of uh deal with that you know on a personal level she realized that that was silly and that she could compose right but she was even though she was free of sort of that internalized sexism she was not free of institutionalized misogyny. Um, there's an example I found in one obituary that I actually didn't know um, that uh, some of her professors uh, actually refused to teach her on the grounds that she was quote unquote too pretty and would soon be married and therefore stop composing. And this was not an episode of Mad Men. Yeah, no, this was this was pretty bad. I mean, this was probably this was well, I guess it was a little bit later, probably in seventies at that point. Um, but uh, her response to this uh, is kind of great. Uh, yeah, she says, "At some point, I thought, well, that's what they think, but I'm going to write my music anyway," <laughs> which I think is great. It's very her. Um, she helped create a contemporary uh, art music uh, um, uh, uh, organization called Korvat Auki with uh, uh, such luminaries as Essa Pekka Salonen, who uh, who. Uh, was has always been a big supporter of her music. Um, she eventually ended up moving away from Finland uh, and uh, to Paris, and she took uh, classes at IRCAM, which is the avant-garde electronic music institute, which we all know and love. I do. Uh, <laughs> Pierre Boulez founded it to give you a sense of that sort of pedigree. Uh, and uh, while she was there, that's when she really started to find uh, a real voice. Um, she was really interested in electronics uh, initially. Mm -hmm. She helped develop some of the first computer-assisted composition techniques. Um, uh, but everything really started to slide into place when she encountered, encountered a musical movement called spectralism. Um, the, the biggest proponents are probably Gérard Griset, Griset probably, mm -hmm. in French, and Tristan Morel. We don't talk about spectralism very much here in no. the opera world at all, which I think is a, is a shame. Uh, it, it is a style that is characterized by a rejection of typical musical construction on a base level. We're not thinking about things in terms of scales anymore. We're not thinking about things in terms of um, uh, uh, even like, you know, serialism, 12 tone boxes and stuff. We're not thinking about those, those sorts of things. They uh, wanted to create 
construct sound on a timbral level. Um, so you're taking like literally the the natural harmonic series of instruments and electronic sounds and building off of those to create a, a new musical space. Um, this is a, a really eerie and alien sounding effect, especially if you're not used to it. Um, but because it's all based on like these like fundamental like tones that you can really only see in like spectrograms and stuff on computers and stuff like that, excuse me, and stuff like that, um, it sounds very natural at the same time. It's working a lot with natural uh, harmonics and resonances of instruments. So a really good spectralist composer can really create this really like alien space like we heard earlier mm -hmm. uh there's a lot of microtones she likes a lot of big walls of sounds um the spectralist influence you can hear a lot in scandinavian countries nowadays um which they you often hear them imitating like uh, uh geological processes like okay. the movement of tectonic plates mm -hmm. and stuff mm -hmm. like that um but it remains kind of obscure in the opera world, I think, because when you're talking about these big, weird, fundamental uh, forces, it's hard to take that and boil it down to a dramatic level, right? They're usually like really bit large scale works of like things moving very slowly and subtly exactly. over time. Yeah, th this is something that I, I often feel like I have a problem with a lot of uh, classic impressionist operas for a similar reason. When you're talking about like the the whole tones of impressionism, you know, it, it, uh, there's not a lot of tension. There's not a lot of dissonance. You know, it's hard to create drama on a fundamental level with that set of techniques. Uh, yes, and Elizondo, oh my God, something please happen. Exactly, <laughs> Anything happen. <laughs> exactly. What makes uh, Sariaho unique is the way that she takes that abstract uh, uh, aesthetic and molds it into a form that is dramatically coherent. Um, she didn't know she could do this for a long time. Uh, she was uh, somewhat famously inspired to begin writing operas after watching Messiaen's uh, Saint, uh, Saint Francis of Assisi. Uh, I'm not going to try the French pronunciation because Oliver would correct me if he was here. Um, but that's a good jumping off point to understand her approach to opera. If you've ever heard that piece, it's 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 glacial, it's long, mm -hmm. but there is still that human and na nature element that really works. And we're talking long, like four compact disc recording <laughs> long. <Yes. laughs> uh, luckily, uh, Sarioho didn't really go the incredibly long route, um, but she does like love to explore that exotic, shimmering sound world that's kind of at the edge of like human senses and sort of this um, magical, ghostly realm. And I think a good example of that comes from her opera, Only the Sound Remains. Um, I have never heard this opera all the way through. I'm still impatiently awaiting a recording to come out. I believe uh, the opera premiered in 2015, I think. Um, so this is pulled from the uh, tr from a trailer with uh, Philippe Jarowski. Um, this opera is inspired by Japanese no plays, um, and it's about a lute-playing ghost, which is a very, sorry, oh. oh, thing to write an opera about. Uh, this is from- <laughs> And a very Dutch... Philip Jaruski thing to be in an opera it, about. Exactly. <laughs> Such a great collaboration. But let's, let's take a little listen to this uh, production uh, from Dutch National Opera.
So as you can hear, she's great at creating the sense of the strange in her music. Her mm-hmm. characters are outgrowths of this atmospheric sound world. They're, uh, it's kind of interesting because it feels very expansive, but at the same time, you really feel like the characters are being pinned in. There's no other place that the characters could exist except in this mass of atmospheric sound. I, I sometimes get the sense when I'm listening to um, uh, Sariaho that I can't breathe, you know? When she really lets loose orchestrally, there's something that just feels so alive and massive to it it's it's almost uh not not necessarily in a scary way uh but like kind of like an eldritch horror a la hp lovecraft you know Mm -hmm. there's just something so like uh you feel so small and the people on stage feel so abstract but she manages to find she still manages to find that humanity in them somewhere they're never fully subsumed by the orchestra in the way that, like, you know, uh, an early Strauss opera might completely wipe out, you know, an ordinary, you know, singer. There is this level of uh, organic uh, organic outgrowth of the sound that becomes these characters. Uh, she and, likes... and her, her, her last opera was very much about people. Yes, it was. And that and that's really interesting, too, because she kept developing uh, her style up to the very end. Obviously, we've heard a lot uh, so far, a lot of her, you know, really abstract kind of magical soundscapes. You know, this one is about a lute playing ghost. Um, the last <laughs> one is about it, L'Amour de Loin is literally about falling in love with a person you've never seen um, without even really a description of that person. That idea These, of courtly love. Exactly, but in a in a very sort of uh, you know in a very the, mystical loving, sense, loving the idea right? of the the idea and ideal of something. Yeah, the idea of the person really subsumes the actual person, um, while still being clearly the person. You know, but but at the end of her career, um, her last opera, Innocence, which came out in twenty twenty one, she starts to take a turn back into the human again. Um, this is a really fascinating piece. I didn't actually know until until I started researching this that there was a full the full opera available on YouTube, which I encourage everyone to check out. Uh, it's it's really good. I mean, uh, big trigger warning. It is about uh, dealing with the trauma of a mm-hmm. mass shooting in a school. Mm-hmm. But you know, in in this in this sound world where she keeps on going back to these like you know religious figure, almost religious figures, mm-hmm. this this mystical realm bringing it back into this very like real uncomfortable area but you uh that we are so familiar with especially here in the US of this repeated trauma of watching mass shootings mm-hmm. um it, you you it's a, it's such an a fascinating take on it that I never would have considered I think that sometimes we can um, almost mechanize uh, political issues in a way mm-hmm. where we're like where we we construct these boxes and these platforms, um, but she very much is in a realm compl- that is so much a part of reality yet completely unlike reality that it forces you to think about it in a different way. 
but at the same time, she's also like making sure that her her own music doesn't get too far out into her own comfortable um, abstract sound world. Um, the, there's almost like a little postmodern turn. You'll hear in this. There's this sort of like half sung amplified moments. There's the uh, there's actually a piano which features very prominently in uh, Innocence, which is unlike a lot of her other works, because like I said, a lot of her spectralist influence is based on natural overtones and um, and spectral composition. But a piano is very bad for that because it's an equal temperament, which is a whole mm. other mm. You know, <laughs> a whole other uh, discussion on a, mu on a music theory level. You're but very this, locked in with so, what yes. kinds. Yeah. You're, you're trapped within a very sort of traditional, these are the notes, don't worry about it kind of mold, um, but she still manages to elevate it and bring it into a new place. This is a really, really cool uh, piece inspired by Wozzeck, so you know I love it. Um, this is a recording from the Aix-en-Provence uh, premiere in 2021 conducted by Susan Melki. If I told you my brother had made me swear not to tell anyone, nobody would have died. I could have prevented all happening. You have tried your frère. The shooter shot me in the three shots and I died at once. But I wanted to participate in my brother's adventure. We shared a secret and it made me feel important. He was my hero. Weston, give us a couple quotations before we uh, get to the final clip. Well, uh, I, I wanted to, uh, I, I when I was reading some, uh, you know, uh, obituaries, um, uh, a lot of people were interviewing, uh, interviewing Esapeka Salonen um, because he knew her so well. Um, and uh, he would he would point out how much of a loved figure she was in, and st well, still is, honestly, in, in, um, uh, in Finland, Finland is such a small country, right. um, but it has such a, an amazing classical music scene. Um, uh, Salonen uh, said in one, um, I think it was, a, I think this is the, from the NPR obit. Uh, he said people would go and talk to her and thank her for the music. Uh, taxi drivers would tell her that that he, they loved her opera. It was on yeah. that level. Um, I think partially it was a devotion to her art that made her want to live away from this kind of pseudo celebrity life in Finland um, and, and spend most of her career in France. 
but you still see such a a deep connection with the the place that she came from that it's impossible not to feel that resonance. Finnish composers, I always say, sound like Finnish composers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but like when you were when you see interviews with her, there's a a documentary. Uh, about the making of one of her operas, you really get this sense that she is that she is kind of aware of all this stuff around her of the of the of you know the fact that she's a celebrity in Finland of the fact that she's a a woman in a still male dominated you know uh, art and industry. She but she has an active dis, disinterest in that kind of ephemera because for her it's all about her art. Um, she was always very open about what she hadn't done before and was very willing to talk about her inspirations and the artists she was collaborating with uh, on stage. Um, and of course, she's a significant historical figure. But when you're taught when she was always questioned about her place in history, she always like tried to she always brushed it off. You know, um, when journalists kept asking her about how she felt about being the second woman, the first woman in over a century to have an opera at the Metropolitan Opera, she got annoyed and said, with social media, the cult of personality has taken over. Could we finally speak about the music? (laughs) Which is a great line that is so, so Kaya Sario. In in a nutshell, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think this is this is the thing. She she throughout her entire life, she was meeting institutional and personal uh sexism uh in her life. She was a very aware of the limitations of her native language artistically. She was um aware of the possibilities of the kind of music she wanted to write and the limitations of that music. But she was always, always, always willing to completely put herself into her music. Um, And it's just, she is one of truly the most special composers that I've ever come across. Um, And really for me defines in an even, even greater way than I think, you know, a lot of the, minimalists and you know hypermodernists um that are still around she defines what 21st century opera can be uh and could be and allows for the possibility of more and better um i just want to close here with another clip from l'amour de loin um uh kind of acknowledging that place in history but i encourage you to listen to the music this is from the uh, historic met production this is from the sort of the final aria um, si tu t'appelles amour, um, apologies to the French. Si tu t'appelles amour. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> In the absence of Oliver, Matt will do. Um, <laughs> this is sung by Susanna Phillips from the Met Production, and it's so gorgeous, it's so alien in sound, but the performance is so human. Um, and it was such a historic moment, but a genuinely beautiful moment. Um, just take a listen.
Let us know what your overlap with Kaya Sariaho might have been. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You can send us an email or even send us a voice memo. Micro segment just to transition us from the Hall of Fame into the two minute drill. So I'm a huge fan of Jeopardy. <laughs> what uh, a tonal uh, shift, George. <laughs> very recently on the show, Ken Jennings is hosting the show. Um, the final Jeopardy clue was opera related. And uh, I'm going to throw this over to both Matt and Weston. So let's say it's it's final Jeopardy. And each of you, you're tied at $10,000 each. So oh. here's what I want you to do is I, I want you to, first of all, hear the category, which is just how they do it on the show. The category is opera and history. Mm. And now you want to wager how much money you each have $10,000 you want to wager Everybody's wagered at this point, so I will give you the answer. The last performance at the Vienna State Opera before it was destroyed in 1945 by Allied bombs was this opera from 1876. Cue that famous music. Do, 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 there we go. Oh, I thought you were going to. <laughs> well, I, I can't get another copyright strike, George. They're uh, they're they're after me. <laughs> you can't. You can't. Okay, you you don't you get thirty seconds on the show, but you don't need thirty seconds. So you are tied. So we would go in alphabetical order. I think is how they did it. Sure. Matt Cummings. What did you write down? Eighteen seventy six sounds like a Wagner opera to me, and I don't know the years when all of those were written, but I'm gonna guess. Tristan and Isolde. What um, is? Okay, you all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lost it. You're good. That is incorrect. I think it's a, a little bit. Uh, I think. And how, and how much? Is, how much later. is it going to cost you? <laughs> oh, I I went for a true daily double, Alex. You went, you went for a true daily double. Oh wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, Weston. What uh, do you got? Uh, uh, what is one of five handle operas? No, I I think I. I, I want to say Matt's on the right track here. It feels like a Wagner. I don't remember the exact dates. Um, I am inclined to say um, uh, Valkyrie. What is? You are also wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> I was also wrong, too, because I watched this on YouTube, and I like timed myself in 30 seconds and had a complete like brain meltdown. The answer is what is Goethe Demerung? Oh, ah, a ring cycle. Which is from 1876 and, of course, would make kind of thematic sense unintentionally. That would, yeah, that would. In, uh, the destruction of the Vienna <laughs> State Opera. So, Which they bombed you... because they thought it was a train station. Fun fact. This is why you that? don't design your opera houses like train stations. We exactly. all know and you know what? Now. The Viennese complained about how ugly they thought that opera house was, and then oh, they built man. it back exactly the same way. <laughs> Never happened. Because then it was Never old happened. enough that they that they liked it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I just thought it was cool that opera made it onto Final Jeopardy. That's, that's great. And all three of us, we got it wrong. The two-minute drill. We're going to get that right. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. 
Multiple singers are considering legal action against Maggio Musicale Fiorentino after the organization canceled a planned production of Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg just six weeks before the start of rehearsals, citing a situation of unpredictable emergency. A replacement revival of Falstaff, which only employed four of the 17 singers, was announced in its stead. Said tenor Paul Curivici, Meistersinger would have kept my family with our heads above water for about four or five months, but it's always the quote, least important freelancers who suffer. Maggio Musicale said that it had the right to withdraw the contract under force majeure. The Metropolitan Opera is reportedly being sued by a former employee over failing to prevent a cyber attack that crippled the company in December 2022. The attack allegedly caused a data breach of the personal information of over 45,000 people. The suit claims that the Met's response has been, quote, woefully insufficient, saying that the Met knew about the breach long before informing the public and only offering a year of identity and credit monitoring services to affected individuals. In an update to a previous story, Natalie Stutzmann has issued a formal apology to the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Quote, it saddens me deeply that my comments have caused such disappointment amongst the orchestra. My intention was only to celebrate the fact that Simon McBurney's wonderful production of The Magic Flute celebrates the orchestra visually, including it in the production, and I wanted to focus on that. It was certainly not my intention to diminish or undervalue in any way the stature and standing of your outstanding orchestra. In trade news, conductor Gustavo Dudamel has resigned from his position as the music director for Paris Opera after only two seasons. Dudamel cited personal reasons for his departure, saying, It is with a heavy heart and after long consideration that I announce my resignation. I have no plans other, to, other than to be with my loved ones, to whom I am deeply grateful for helping me to continue to be strong in my resolve to grow and remain challenged, both personally and artistically, each and every day. Friend of the show, Barbara Hannigan, has been appointed Reinbard de Leo Professor of Music at the Royal Academy of Music. She'll direct ensembles, mentor singers, and offer guidance to students in the new role. Quote, Barbara is an exceptional force of nature and a brilliant role model, says Academy Principal Jonathan Freeman Atwood. I am thrilled that she will become part of the fabric of the Academy life. Italian conductor Speranza Scapucci is set to become the new principal guest conductor at the Royal Opera House in 2025, becoming the first person to hold the position in almost three decades, and the first woman to hold the position in, well, ever. Scapucci said she hoped that she would be able to demystify opera for new audiences, quote, We can't just be in our ivory tower. We need to bring people to us. Christmas is coming early for tenor Jonas Kaufmann, who is set to become the next intendant of the Tiroler Festspiele Erl in September. That's all he wanted. He'll take over from the current intendant Bernhard Löbe. The Giulio Gari Foundation have announced the winners of their 2023 vocal competition. The grand prize went to friend of the show Kimon Mara, second place went to Chinese bass baritone Li Bu, and third to Ukrainian bass baritone Vladislav Biolaski. Exit stage right, Juilliard has announced the death of professor, author, and vocal coach Corradina Caparello at the age of 79. Caparello taught singers and conductors for nearly 40 years in the art of Italian diction, leaving a profound impact on vocal music performance throughout the world. English tenor John Dobson has died at 92. Dobson enjoyed a long career between 1959 and 1996, singing over a hundred different roles. He described his job in comprimario, comprimario roles this way. 
Think of all the actors on television who have done 150 films. They're always there, and you know the faces, but you can't quite put names to them. They're my kind of people. English soprano and mezzo-soprano Catherine Harries has died at the age of 72. Harries specialized in German rep, particularly Wagner, but was also known for creating the title role in Edward Harper's Hedda Gobbler. Czech mezzo-soprano Sonia Cervena has died at 97. She made her debut in 1954, eventually escaped the Eastern Bloc in the 60s and went on to specialize in 18th century opera. After the fall of the Iron Curtain and her retirement as a singer, Trevena returned to her home country as an actress and even had an asteroid named after her. And on this day, June 5th in 1834, soprano Teresa Stoltz was born. She was the soprano who sang the first solo in the premiere of the Verdi Requiem. In 1843, it was the first performance of Donizetti's Maria di Rohan, an opera everyone has seen. <laughs> Austrian composer Alfred Uhl was born on this day in 1909. And in 1913, it was the first performance of the Stravinsky and Ravel orchestration of Mussorgsky's Kovancina. That's the second of the three versions extant of the opera and the one that is least frequently performed but we are celebrating nonetheless in 1931 it was the birth of english mezzo-soprano anna reynolds and 1939 dutch composer louis andreessen was born in utrecht and and finally happy birthday to american conductor victoria bond born on this day in los angeles in 1945 and that's your two-minute drill That was the inimitable Irina Arkhipova singing part of Marfa's aria from Kovancina. Uh, that recording comes from a 1989 gala, Stars of World Opera of the Bolshoi. Uh, <laughs> Arkhipova was a titan of Russian mm. opera during the Soviet years, and really I still don't think is known as well as she should be in the Western world, because so many of her recordings were uh, trapped behind the Iron Curtain uh, mm-hmm, uh, until the, yeah. the 90s and millenni- new millennium. But she is an incredibly uh, intelligent and si- uh, singer with like a world-class voice. And anytime I'm listening to Russian opera, if there's an Arkhipova recording, that's one that I gravitate to. So this is the like legal blotter episode, I guess, because <laughs> uh, people are Nexus, su- Nexus. suing each other and the whole thing. So, okay. Maggio Musicale Fiorentino cancels Meistersinger, which is a big show. I get that. This is six weeks before rehearsals and replaces it with Falstaff. What's, For an what's unexpected emergency that no one could have seen and is certainly not anyone's <laughs> fault. Definitely no embezzlement happening I mean, at this organization. <laughs> I mean, there was flooding in Italy, but this is unrelated to that. So, I, yeah. 
Yeah, there's going to be a lot of allegedly's flying around <laughs> in our analysis of a lot of these things happening yeah. this week. Yeah, I, I think the Maggio Musicale. Um, I I don't know enough about how European contracts work to really be like be like who's in the wrong. I, I have the sense that they're probably legally allowed to have done what they did. But it does suck, honestly. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly they should have done more to fix it. Uh, at the same time, you know, I, was it there? Was it their uh, general director or musical director who was allegedly, allegedly, he was allegedly, the former allegedly. Super, he, he was the former superintendent. And yeah. he that's is, right. Uh, uh, that's Alexander Pereira, who uh, resigned after an ongoing fraud inv- so not not after but during an ongoing yes. fraud investigation that, that's, that's not suspicious in the slightest um yeah so we're, we'll let them sort that one out um and similarly this is another one we have to sort out uh, let's get sort out the big uh, metropolitan opera identity theft case this is so which strange. is strange <laughs> yeah so so basically there was obviously the cyber attack um that crippled the met for um about a week or so in december um and apparently uh this lawsuit also alleges there were some other ones as well that weren't talked okay. about and P- possibly um, going all the way back to september like a whole quarter yes, of yes. the year there may have been cyber criminals scraping out uh identifying data like social security numbers driver's license numbers credit card numbers like oh god that's a lot of identity fraud risk yes very much i mean the met is the largest um uh uh, performing arts organization in the u.s by a very wide margin um so it is they have access to a lot of materials a lot of social security numbers addresses um credit card information um uh, and we're talking about audience members and um, uh, em- employees. Uh, it- it's a mess. Uh, and uh, I-, I will say a lot of this uh, information that we're hearing is coming through, you know, secondary sources. Um, uh, and of course, the lawsuit is all, again, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Um, but it's it does raise some interesting questions, I think, about the responsibility of companies to keep this information in check because i don't doubt that uh, an institution like the met was maybe not on the most cutting edge of cybersecurity exactly. before like I'm, december I'm, yeah. and not even cybersecurity, but like probably technology probably yeah. these are not usually organizations that have a ton of budget to spend on the latest <laughs> and greatest computers it's not Google so the, hacker, the hackers came in with a floppy disk and yes. slid, slid but so, this is the this... world today like more and more i mean the federal government is asleep at the wheel about private privacy of course but like right, more and more right, states right. are passing laws about what in uh, identifying information you're allowed to have accessible to people right. and like how right. you have exactly. to purge that and that's really something that these organizations need to be getting ahead of and this yeah. is a class action lawsuit right so yeah presumably if you've ever gotten like a little thin paper postcard in the mail which sort of warns you about the class action hey i got lawsuit. 42 dollars from apple from my this, keyboard so this is, hey this hey. is my point man are, are forty-five thousand people all gonna get a check for like six bucks or another year free of credit monitoring it is possible <laughs> um it, it here's the thing that like worries me like yes the what happened to the met is um uh is unfortunate they probably could have done better um i would i would i would guess they probably could have done a little bit better in that regard um 
But at the same time, I do think that there's a certain amount of inevitability mm-hmm. with these things. These are happening all over the place to everyone because it's so easy if you have like just a little, a little tiny hole, or even if you have like a really top-notch security system, you know, you can really still get, you know, screwed over pretty easily. And like when this kind of thing happens to like a Facebook or an Apple, right. um, and and they're paying, you know, 40 bucks to a hundred million people, you know, like that that I'm I'm not gonna lose any sleep over. Like I I I'm like you, Matt, I got a, a uh, little, a little sweet kickback from um uh, from Mark Zuckerberg. But the at the same time, my worry with the Met, the Met does not have the infinite money glitch like right. uh, a lot of these big companies do. Um, and I, I mean, it's possible that they were maybe uh, criminally negligent in how they stored this information. I mean, 45,000, if that's an accurate number, is is mm-hmm. bonkers. All of us, of course, are lawyers, which is why we're <laughs> offering such crack legal <laughs> yeah. analysis. Allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly. Um, but the uh, I, I do think that... Um, uh, it, it can be uh, – it, it concerns me with the Met in its current financial position if it does have to have a massive payout um, uh, disproportionate to the amount of money it actually has. Exactly. That could be a problem. You right? give 45,000 people 100 bucks each and that's almost you know $5 million that you're losing. Yeah, and, and bear in something. mind like there there is no justice here because uh, – and this might be, might be a, a bad idea for me to say uh, out, out here on the internet. But um, if you all remember – the Equifax data breach from maybe 15 years ago or so. Not fun even, fact, like six years ago. It just yeah, feels like 15. Yeah. <laughs> well, fun fact, I was one of the very large portion of the country that whose information went whoo, okay. and I am enjoying, I think, maybe my fourth or fifth year of free credit mo- monitoring at this point, you know. <laughs> um, really, really, really good stuff. Really, really feel like I got the justice on that one. It's... Uh, there's a disproportionate response, I think, for like a company like, you know, Equifax, who frankly doesn't even need to exist, um, uh, getting away with a slap on the wrist and going after a, a company that might have just been a little bit out of date. Now, do I think that, you know, I, I think the Met should be like, you know, brought to justice for anything that was genuinely like negligent? That's, that's probably a good idea. But at the same time, uh, this is going to be such a this is already such a widespread problem. I mean, there are not many people left who haven't had their sure. uh, social security sure. out on the dark web somewhere at this sure. point. Sure. So right. I mean, I if, if only the Med could take more time protecting itself from cyber attacks and less time attacking its own employees like Natalie Stressman. Oh my God, this, George! This is the biggest pile of BS. I I know I, I missed I missed the sh- I missed the show when when Cummings was was talking about this. So you know we we can. So she gave an interview in the Times. Let's do a quick recap, saying yeah, yeah, yeah. that it was very cool that this new production of Magic Flute had the orchestra on stage because everyone could be very connected, and also that was probably less boring than the Met Orchestra. And the Met Orchestra fired back on Instagram with this long diatribe about, of course they weren't bored. They're artists at the top of their craft. How dare she? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, I... it's, it's such a pile of BS because, first of all, they were bored. that They're just lying about that. It's like, well, that wasn't her intention. Allegedly. She's, allegedly, she's allegedly. There's no, you don't bite the hand that feeds you at that level. There is no possible way that Natalie Stutzbond was actually attacking the Met Orchestra. Was it, was it, did she speak clearly? No, but 
it, it's so it's just so obvious there's no way she would attack. I, I just i i know i i'm with you that i really don't think she owed them an apology I, but didn't. it's but she it's totally probably didn't. good but from like a pr standpoint like case closed we're probably the only ones who are still talking about this two weeks later because of right, the yeah. memorial day holiday but <laughs> if, if, she, if she was a man would she have been forced to do a formal apology that's, that's something that has crossed my mind, certainly. I, I it, it did seem like, a, a, I mean, I think it was the right thing to do for her to apologize. Again, I, I, I'm kind of with you you guys. I don't think she really needed to because not. I I think every pit musician I've ever met in any company, no matter the size, has been like, oh, yeah, yeah at some point you get bored, you know? <laughs> of course, half the time they're all thinking about a burrito because they're hungry. And, they, and having so been... Granted, a, a not professional musician, but like having uh, being some, I don't get bored easily, which is why I can listen to the weird stuff that I do for as long as I do. But like you know, <laughs> I w- I wouldn't begrudge anyone that statement, and right. I I do think that there's a certain perspective she was trying to come from, you know, because she's, uh, she's obviously a very talented conductor. Um, but she's also first and foremost uh, a singer as well, so she has this this you know and a former bassoonist. So it's not like she's never bassoonist. played in an orchestra before. <laughs> yeah, she's 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 got all of it. And I think she's just trying to like you know join up that experience and being like, wow, as a singer, I understand how electrifying it is to be on stage, even if an orchestra member might not care about that. Um, and you know, it's I I think it's. I think it was it was very strange how how direct the orchestra's social media was about being bummed by that because it's it's something I would have read and like I wouldn't uh, not it wouldn't even, even cross my mind thought. yeah yeah uh, so I don't I don't know who's in charge of the uh, Met Orchestra uh, social media but it's also kind of weird to do with someone you just worked with too so I, I wonder if there's some other weird animosity going on behind the scenes there but that's all speculation. Allegedly, 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 you know, you know the drill at this point. Well, the real question is, was she, was the orchestra more or less bored than Gustavo Dudamel at Paris Opera? (laughs) That's the real question, Matt. I mean, like, Dudamel is, I mean, we have nothing here except complete speculation. Once more, allegedly is the theme of the episode. The story is completely Everyone is saying it's for personal reasons. It's because he wants to spend more time with his family. It's for work-life balance. Yes. He's not Uh, even committing to, like, going to New York more early. Yeah, it's just, it it, it is a little weird because this is uh, historically kind of a a very, very short tenure at Mm -hmm. Paris Opera. The only two years is not Yeah, his contract was set to go through 2026. Yeah. Which is a much more normal length of contract for a a music director yeah we have no reason to believe that there was any weird bad blood or anything but i have seen people speculating about it but i think those people are uh not very reliable resources when it comes to factual information um but it is another weird thing and a lot of weird alleged you know things going on this here's what i don't get is that he says i have no other plans other than to be with my loved ones is that like he's really not doing anything else? It seems like it. I, I mean, I would be surprised if he I, I wouldn't be surprised rather if he ends up still conducting some of the shows that he might have been slated for. Like, I just don't think there are that many conductors who would be ready to lead the exterminating angel on a moment's notice. It's a new work <laughs> that's only been performed, what, like twice at this point. Right. But what's the other thing he was set for? Lohengrin? Like, there are people that they're going to be able to book yeah. who have yeah. done Lohengrin before. Yeah, definitely. 
Natalie Stutzmann, maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> bring it all back you, around. Saw what you did there. Saw what you did there. <laughs> I just, I love this this quote. John Dobson, more like Don Jobson. Okay, this that's guy's enough, got George. so so many roles. <laughs> I, I just, I dug this quote. Think of all the actors on television. He said, "Who's done 150 films? They're always there, and you, you know the faces. You can't put names to them." They're my kind of people. That is like the perfect o- opera's definition. character actress Margot Martindale. Literally, <laughs> I, I really love this. He, he, he uh, the Guardian obituary quoted some interviews he had, um, talking about how he wanted to be like a soloist um, at Covent Garden, and like very quickly he like realized that wasn't in the cards. Right, and he right. was disappointed at first, but then he realized. I'm doing a valuable thing here. I I am I am there. I'm taking on mm-hmm. these roles. Mm-hmm. I'm making uh, my scene partners look good, which is really what you want in any so sort great. of theatrical production. And it's just such a positive, amazing attitude to have for performance. I found it really genuinely inspiring as someone who, uh, you know, is also has also come to the conclusion that I'm not going to sing or act in any sort of mainline way you know and i think it's just a um uh, he'll be he'll be really missed it's 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 people like him that keep this industry going you know and that's uh we 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 depend on them just as much if not more than all the big names that end up in the hall of fame let's wrap this show up good call bad call on opera box score great to have matt cummings and weston williams and myself back on the air one of these days we're gonna get all five of us back in the same Good call, bad call. And then then the seven seals will align. (laughs) The portals of hell will open. Good call, bad call. Matt Cummings, what do you got? We're taping this on Monday, which means that last night was the first Sunday since the end of Succession. And, like, it just doesn't hit the same as it used to. Mm. I'm sorry if you listeners are tired of listening to us talk about Succession. I'm sorry if you thought that you would be over it. um, But you're incorrect. Because uh, it's possibly the best tv show that i've ever seen and i will definitely be listening to the long uh fresh air interview that just got posted this afternoon tomorrow weston williams well it's funny that you mentioned succession because uh uh, i had my uh wedding on a sunday um and uh i was getting my hair trimmed that morning and I said I was getting married that evening, and mm-hmm. the barber was very annoyed at me for making people uh, miss <laughs> miss succession, which I which I which is which is fair, I suppose. But I like to think I made up for it in my pro- a choice of music for the pro- processional, which was the finale of Einstein on the Beach. So you're welcome to all oh of my God. wedding attendees <laughs> for that. Wow. You got guts, sir. You got, you got guts, man. Uh, I got a good call and a bad call. Good call, of course, I guess, is that the American Guild of Musical Artists and Central City Opera finally came to an agreement and managed to get a, a five-year contract together. The bad call, of course, must be mine. At the beginning of this calendar year, one of my year's predictions was that they would not make an agreement and that Central City's 2023 summer season would be canceled Obviously, that's not going to happen. It is going to go ahead. So, you yours truly got in George. just under the wire. Yeah, <laughs> they did just get under the wire. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. And you can find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. 
And hey, that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Just get back to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell, your creative consultant, Oliver Camacho, audio editor, Weston Williams. For co-host Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you sprinkle all of your commentary with the word allegedly for liability <laughs> reasons. We're back with an all new show next week. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more potentially synesthesia inspired spectralism. Say it five times fast. Join us.